Welcome to the first episode of Doc Talk. I'm your host, Lizzie Chung. Thank you for joining me for today's episode to learn about the field of theoretical nuclear physics. Our guest today is Dr. Sabine Yeshinek. I hope you enjoy. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, today, I am here with Dr. Sabine Yeshinek, or as we like to call her, Dr. J. Um, she is a physics professor at the Ohio State University Lima campus, and we're very excited to have her on today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lizzie, for having me. I'm excited to, to be a guest on your podcast. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I just wanted to start off with you kind of talking about your journey into physics and your journey to where you are now. So kind of going over what got you into physics in the first place, where did you study, uh, what exactly did you study, and then talking about different fellowship experiences you had that really convinced you that like this is what you wanted to do. Well, um, I had my first physics instruction when I was in eighth grade. And I really liked it. And so basically that's where, where it started out. I, I still remember that uh, I was at some point realizing that's really fun. I had been out sick for maybe a week or two. Or two. I don't know. I, I used to get lots of colds and stuff like that. So, And then I was going over the, the class notes of one of my friends and then I kind of discovered that, hey, this is kind of like, that, that really makes sense. And it's, you know, I can, can do that. And there's some, some logic and beauty to it. I think it has, had to do with geometric optics. And uh, so I still remember that, that moment. So I was, I was kind of thinking to myself, that's fun. And also what was, was a lot of fun was that uh, our teacher, she offered us that we could come once per week in the afternoon for a few hours and basically try out all the, the equipment and demo experiments uh, and all the hands-on stuff we had in the physics collection. And I was lucky that my, my school, school in Germany is a little different from the US. So you go to a secondary school and uh, that's going from fifth grade to 13th grade. And it's at different types of schools, but. I was at a college prep school and they, they were very much into science. So they had this really big collection. And so that was fun. And another really fun thing from back then, eighth grade, was that our teacher then, so there was like, like a, a group of yeah, three or four kids who were coming regularly, having a lot of fun with that. And then she also invited us to, to her home. And there we got exposed, we, we were allowed to write code on her husband's PC. So her husband was a math professor at Bonn and that was back when computers were like, like personal computers were really new. So he had something and uh, I don't know what it was. It's who knows, there were all kinds of, of brands back then that, that are not there anymore. But anyway, so that was my first experience writing computer code in basic and I was quite taken with that too. And it's still something I love to do to write computer codes and all kinds of situations. So that was a really great positive experience to start off. And I was really lucky. I had a, a number of really good teachers. And so I just 
really kept enjoying it all throughout high school. And I think by yeah, by ninth or tenth grade, if anybody asked me I want what I wanted to do, I, I tell them I wanted to, to study physics. So and that happened. Wow. <laughs> and then I yeah, enrolled at Bonn University, which was actually quite close to, to my hometown. And so in Germany, it's not unusual that you actually stay at home and then just commute to your school. And so that's what I did, was, because it was close by and uh, also a really good university. And so, yeah, I, I studied physics. And then um, the way it's organized in Germany is that after two years, you, you have a, a first set of oral exams, because they basically get to ask you about everything you learned in math and experimental physics and theoretical physics and then you have to have like some minor subject which for me was chemistry which I really didn't like that much but hey I had to take it so that was all okay and so then you have two more years of of, of taking courses and another set of for oral exams and then you have to pick your area where you want to do your your thesis and so in the meantime, it has changed, but back then it was kind of more like comparable. Your first degree in Germany would be like a master's degree, meaning you had to have four years of coursework and then uh, a year or two of, of research and then write a thesis about that. And that would be your basically the, the first degree you get. And then you can go to a graduate school and get a PhD. So I always had enjoyed in particular my, my theoretical physics lectures. And so I simply asked my, yeah, my favorite theoretical physics professor if I could uh, do some research work with him. And so that's how I um, came to a research institute that was actually not at the university, but at a big national lab that was about like uh, 40 miles away or 50 miles away. And so, uh, so yeah, the professors who, who had a position at that national lab, they would come in and, and give lectures at my university. So they, they were also professors at that university. And so I was then physically stationed at that research lab. And so that was also an interesting environment. And so there I started to do research in theoretical nuclear physics. And I should probably explain what that is because that's it's not so obvious. And the, yeah, the things that might spring to mind are things like nuclear bombs or power plants or so. And it, it's not that. That was sort of your, your great grandma's nuclear physics. And nowadays these things are, are pretty well understood and they're very important problems, but engineering problems more. Or there's a whole branch of nuclear engineering where we people look into how to make good safe power plants and so on. So what we are doing in nuclear physics and what I always found really fascinating is um, we looked in, in we look into really small particles and in, into in basically the smallest building blocks of matter. And I always found, I mean, I like physics because I like to understand how things are, are working. And so uh, it's kind of like you, you always, for me, it was always, okay, if you take this apart, you know, now what's, what's the next layer? What's coming, you know, what's even further down? 
And I understand that there are some people who say, okay, it's more like the other way around, like the bigger, the better, like look at the solar system, look at the Milky Way, look at the whole universe. And, and that's super cool too. And there are actually even connections between the very small and the very big. But I guess for whatever reason, I always liked like the very small things. And that's what nuclear physics is dealing with. And so nuclear consists, uh, consists out of protons and neutrons. And they're exchanging particles that keep them together. You probably are aware of that there's a, an electrostatic repulsive force between the positive charges. And so nuclei are sticking together because they're very, very strong and very, very short ranged forces acting between protons and neutrons. And they are mediated or they're basically they're, they're happening by exchange of particles between them. And these are the pions. That was the picture that, that we had early on of, of nuclei. And then later on, we understood that protons, neutrons, pions, and uh, so the, that these are all, again, they're not elementary. They are made up out of smaller particles, the quarks. And these are really cool because every other particle that we, we know of, we can look at, we can isolate, like say a single proton, a single electron. And you cannot isolate a single quark. They are always hanging together. They're, they're strongly bound with, with some other quarks. So they are either three quarks or a quark and an antiquark together. And inside the nucleus, you have all these protons and neutrons floating around. But one of the, the interesting questions is, um, we know these are not the most elementary particles that make up the nucleus. We could also look at the nucleus as, let's say, a soup of quarks. but it works actually very well to describe the nucleus in terms of these protons and neutrons. That's what's called degrees of freedom. And what's most interesting to me and sort of my, my research area, and there are lots of other interesting subfields. There are so many good questions to ask. So if you're listening to this right now and you say, oh, well, you know, physics sounds good, but, but this is, doesn't sound like my thing. Don't worry. There's so many different interesting questions to be looked at. So. What, what I'm interested in is when, let's say, a proton and a neutron inside the nucleus come very close to each other. At some point, you're going to notice that there's a substructure, and meaning that, that you get sensitive to, to, okay, this thing is made out of uh, quarks. And at some point, we expect that we are going to see some sort of experimental signal from that. And the two ways to describe that, and that's a fancy name for that is quark-hadron duality. Either you can say, well, I'm having a proton and a neutron, and now maybe I have an exchange of one pion or maybe exchange of two pions, or I'm going to exchange another particle that's sim similar to pions. It's called a rho, just a little more massive. And if I can't describe my interactions, then well, I have to include a few more of these particles that could be exchanged. And that's fine. And that's a good, correct way to look at it. But at some point, it can become a little cumbersome. And then you have also sort of the perspective from the other side that you say, okay, here I'm having quarks in here. And maybe it's easier to describe everything in terms of quarks, which by the way, have a very strong interaction. It's called the color strong interaction. Doesn't really have anything to do with like real colors that we see, it's just a name. 
and they're exchanging gluons and they carry color. And that's just another physical property, kind of like you could think about it as a different sort type of charge. Like, like there's electric charge and then there's color charge. So, um, and so these gluons carry that and uh, uh, so they, they mediate the, uh, the, the force between the quarks. And the question is, might it be easier to just look at everything in terms of quark and gluon degrees of freedom? There is a place where that is definitely the way to go, which is at high energies, where the interactions between these quarks, they actually depend on the energy you, you're pushing in there. And so there, something called asymptotic freedom, the interactions get weaker and weaker the more energy you have. That's what's studied by particle physics. Nuclear physics is at lower energies, and there we have stronger interactions between everybody. So if you're interested in studying these really strong interactions, nuclei are the way to go. Okay, so this was like a big picture here. Is that what you're looking for? Or should I elaborate more? You know, I have to warn you, I could go on for hours if, if you don't stop. Okay. okay, I think that's um, good. And then can you also talk about um, like uh, your internship or your fellowships in Italy and um, also at MIT. And then you also did research at um, another lab in- Right, at Jefferson Lab. Okay, yeah, I, I, I should pick up what, what happened to me after I got my PhD, well, actually during my PhD. So uh, when, uh, while I was at my research institute in, in, at the National Lab in Jülich, I was working with, actually, I happened to have an advisor who came from the former Soviet Union and named Nikolai Nikolaevich Nikolaev, really cool guy, knows lots and lots and lots of stuff about physics, quite amazing. And at some point, that was almost by chance, we, we picked up another collaborator from Italy. And so we, we started, that was doing my, my PhD. And so, yeah. He came and visited us for like, you know, three or four weeks or so at, uh, at the national lab. And then I also went to Pavia in Northern Italy. And for, for like, yeah, three or four weeks, a few times. And that was really fun because, I mean, obviously you do a lot of good physics, but this was also nice because I, I got to go to Italy and you know, you experience the culture a little bit. One fun thing was, as a graduate student, of course, you don't have that much money. And so I, I stayed there at basically uh, in a big apartment. And there were, at that point, the first time I came there, there were like three other girls there and they were all studying physics, which is already fairly rare. And I since then, I've never come to another place where I entered the living room and I saw a few physics textbooks on the coffee table. So that was really fun. And so I, you know, I got to visit a place I wouldn't have visited otherwise. And I got to see a little bit of the system there. I, you know, met interesting people and I learned a little bit of Italian. So that, that was really fun, not just from, from the physics point of view, just also, you know, was a great experience to have in general. And I also always really enjoyed uh, the many visitors we got, got at our institute. So we, we had people there from, from all over the place, 
there was somebody who was a research scientist from Poland who was there for about two or three years while I was there and uh, somebody else from Italy with whom I worked on my master's thesis. And then we had a lot of short-term visitors or just visitors who'd come in and give a talk. So that's one of the fun things about science. You get to meet a lot of people from all over the world and you have something, you know, a common interest. And so that's, that's really cool and really fun. And after I got my, my PhD, it's pretty common to, uh, in, in Germany, that then you, you have to leave the country for a few years to gain some experience somewhere else. And so I went to the US, I went to MIT, I had a fellowship from the Humboldt Foundation, that's a German foundation, and one of their programs is for uh, more senior scientists, like, like really super high level scientists from abroad to come to Germany and spend a year there. And then once they have gone, gone home, then you can apply to work with them. And so for, and that's a fellowship for more, let's say more junior scientists, basically for people who just got their PhD. And so I, I went to, to MIT and worked with Bill Donnelly there, again, about electron scattering. And I yeah, learned a lot of cool things. MIT, the Center for Theoretical Physics is a super cool place because you, you know, you walk through the hallway and uh, you go to, to, to the lunch hour there and it's like, okay, you meet several people who have written textbooks you heard of. So that was kind of cool. And it's, it's to some extent also, you know, a bit, uh, yeah, a little bit frightening if you just arrived there and, <laughs> and then you see all these super smart and some, well, as famous as physicists are, but you know, they're also very nice. And, and my advisor was super nice there and, and, you know, always happy to talk with me about physics, explain stuff. And, and that was really quite, yeah, that, that was great. And, you know, being at such a storied, cool place as MIT, that was, was great fun. And so I spent two years there. And then I, did my, at that point, I kind of knew I wanted to stay in, well, I kind of had known that one all along, and that I would like to stay in the US if possible, because at that point, probably still job prospects in Germany were, were not good at all for if you wanted to stay in academia, and they were quite a bit better in the US, and also the type of physics I'm interested in. The experiments that I'm interested in, that I do calculations for, they are mainly happening at big accelerators in the United States, like the Jefferson Lab, or there's, there's a rare isotope beam facility that's in, uh, at Michigan State, and there's going to be an electron-ion collider that will be built at Brookhaven National Lab. So it, it also makes a lot of sense for me to be here. And so then I did a postdoc for three years at Jefferson Lab in Virginia. And as I just mentioned, they have a big electron accelerator. And so the very cool thing there is that um, they have a lot of experimentalists coming in to do experiments there. So it's kind of like, you know, everybody who is doing really interesting things in the field is coming there. And you get to meet them all when you're there. So that's, that's good. And there are always talks that you want to go to. 
And so I, I worked there with yeah, Wally Van Orden. And actually the funny thing is that I, I continued working with, with Wally for all this time until now. So that's like by now 20 years that I, uh, yeah, on, uh, actually, yeah, 20 years ago in, in September, I came, came to Lima. And I'm also now working again together with Wally Van Orden and with Bill, Bill Donnelly from MIT. So we are kind of all together again. <laughs> and we, we have our Skype calls every Tuesday afternoon talking about research. And that's been you know, a really pleasant thing to be working with two of my favorite collaborators and friends. And so it's, it's really nice. <laughs> awesome. That's great. And then um, kind of going off of this and talking about physics just generally, I was wondering if you could just um, kind of give an example for um, the people listening of physics and how we kind of use it in everyday life and how it's really evident when we kind of start to switch our minds to think about that. Okay, I have to say that's it's a good question. I mean, we, we use physics in, in all kinds of things. and. Like say, for example, you know, our smartphones that we all love very much, right? They wouldn't be possible without lots of physics. And for example, uh, the fact that we can store all, you know, a huge amount of data on them. Uh, the inside there is some condensed matter uh, physics uh, that, that, that allowed building this type of storage. So, and you know we're talking over the internet right now and guess what uh, you know where that's coming from yeah physics research the world wide web was basically created by tim berners lee at cern that's a big uh, research facility with a huge accelerator in, in switzerland for, the uh, for when, when we do particle or nuclear physics experiments uh, the accelerator technology and the uh, detectors that, that we use to to figure out what's going on um, they are basically also very, very useful for, for medical applications. So both for, for imaging and for, uh, for treatment of, of cancer, for example, with radiation therapy. And so there, there's a lot of overlap there. And one thing that just came into my mind, because I really probably should explain why we have accelerators. And, you know, especially why people who really are interested in so really tiny stuff, love accelerators. Um, well, if we want to understand some, how something works, what we do is we look at it, right? And usually we, when we just look with our eyes, we have visible light and we are going to, to see certain things. And if they're too small, we, we have to use a microscope. So there's a magnification factor, but if you want to go even smaller, like a microscope, you know, these are great for biology. So you, you see small scale things, but not, not things that are uh, on the molecular or atomic level. If you want to look at these, so an atom is roughly of the size 10 to the minus 10 meters, and a single proton has roughly a size of 10 to the minus 15 meters. So that's too small for a microscope. But a particle accelerator is really like a big microscope. So when we see something, we use light waves. And a light wave is just kind of like a water wave. 
and the distance from one crest to the next crest, that's called the wavelength. And the wavelength kind of tells you what you can, can see and still resolve. So that means if you want to look at something that is x wide, then you probably should use a wavelength that's somewhere around x. And so that means we have to have, if you want to quote unquote, look at a, a proton, we have to have something that's 10 to the minus 15 meters in wavelength. That's not the visible uh, regime anymore. That's, that's 10 to the minus seven meters. So we can't build our quote unquote microscope for light anymore, but we have to use something else. And what we use there are basically uh, okay, well, we, we are still using light in the, in the sense of electromagnetic waves, but not visible light anymore, right? So what, what we usually call light in our everyday world. And so what we have there is we, we send an electron in towards the target, and then the electron and the target are exchanging a virtual photon that's I can explain that, but for, for now, actually what we really just need is that something is basically a wave and that is going to have a, a, a fairly short wavelength and the exact amount of how big that wavelength is depends on the energy of the electron we are shooting in there. And so basically, the faster my electron is, the more energy it has, then the more, uh, the, the shorter the wavelengths can be because the, whenever we have a, a photon like that, then the wavelength is going to be inversely proportional to the energy the photon carries. And so that means if you want to have a, a wave that can resolve very small things, we have to have a wave that carries very high energy. And this is why we have to accelerate the electrons at first, because we really need to give them a lot of energy so that then that energy can be put into that wave and then we can resolve the things that are inside the, the nucleus. So our particle accelerators are basically just gigantic microscopes. And they're not working with visible light, they're working with virtual photons that have much, much, much shorter wavelengths. But it's, it's basically sort of the same principle. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And then, um... Now kind of uh, transitioning a, a little bit again. So now maybe there are people listening to this who say, well, physics sounds really cool. And maybe this is something that I want to explore going into in the future. So would you have any tips or pieces of advice for students who maybe want to go into physics or think it's really interesting and where they should start looking to kind of get into research for that and learning more about it? Um, Absolutely. Um, I do have some resources to share with you. There, there's some really good information from the American Physical Society. So maybe you can put that into your show notes or so. And um, what, what, what I did and what really got me hooked on these things, I read some like popular science books. There are some that are really good. So I, I read one about, okay, I think it was called Going into the Heart of Matter and that was, I, I got my hands on that by chance. That, that was in my parents' bookshelf. I don't think either of my parents ever read it, but uh, somehow it ended up there and, and I just loved it. And it, it was so thrilling to, to be able to read these things and, and to see that we're thinking about it. Then I could understand that too, that, that 
okay, so that, that was huge for me. So there are quite a few good books out there um, you could read. There are podcasts, right? You are doing one. So that was clearly a medium that wasn't in existence when, when I was at that age. And, but there are a lot of, of really good ones, interesting ones. Um, there's one by Sean Carroll, I think called Mindscape and he's a fine theoretical physicist and he's written lots of good books too. And so one, one way is definitely listen to podcasts, read a book that's, that's cool. And what I'd like to encourage everybody, if you have questions, you know, take a look at the, the listing of your local, let's say local university and look who's in the physics department. And typically there will be an email. So send them an email. They'll probably be really happy to hear from you. And um, so that's, that's a good thing. There are things like internships, sometimes even for high school students. And definitely once you're in, um, in college, uh, there are summer programs. Uh, organizations like NASA offer them. Uh, then there are lots of what's called REU, Research Experience for Undergraduates. And there are um, summer internships and, and internships at labs, uh, basic research labs uh, run by the Department of Energy. And so there are lots of good opportunities there. And I think what, what might be really helpful is, you know, if you're truly interested, you know, email anyone who's, you know, at a nearby university in the physics department and just ask. That, that might give you the best results. <laughs> and um, I'll, yeah, if you want to, I, I can give you sort of a list of links and, uh, and, and books that, that might be fun to read. There's, there are a lot of good books out and they do a good job also explaining the physics. So it's not that you have to like have lots of math knowledge or so. They just explain the ideas in a really nice way, in a really fun way. And I think that's a good way to approach physics. Yeah. And also you should always keep in mind that nobody is born a physicist. Um, you, you know, you have to learn these things and, you know, just give it a try. And if, you know, if it doesn't really work out at first, then you just give it another few tries and that's perfectly normal. And it's all about just, you know, learning more and, and you know, so just sort of like, it's kind of like doing sports and going to the gym and then you're, you're becoming a little fitter and stronger and healthier. And, and in the same way, you're, you're exercising your brain and you'll get better at physics then. Awesome. And then for people that are currently maybe in a physics class or are currently majoring in physics, um, would you have any um, pieces of, of advice for different study tips that may be beneficial for them and being able to really learn the material and remember it? Um, excellent question. So I, to some extent, in, in terms of, you know, how to get the most out of your, your experience studying physics, definitely talk to your professor and you know, ask them and maybe ask them for a research project because that's a great thing. It's something I didn't get to do research as an undergraduate because that just wasn't a thing back then or not that much or you. And uh, so I, I wouldn't have known how to organize that for myself. But um, now that I, I know that physics professors are actually human and nice and they rarely bite, um, 
definitely ask them for a project because this is much more common now. And, and so it's kind of fun also to share what, what you enjoy and what you like uh, with somebody else. And so, so that's a good opportunity to, to engage with the material and also to see a little more about what, what would it be like to, to be a, like a career physicist, right? And because it's not always just like, like in-class coursework, um, and all the other qualities that are important that you're able to stick with something and able to, you know, you spend a lot of time on a very small area and in coursework, you tend to spend, you know, a little time on everything and you, you, you go through a very wide field of things. So it's just a little bit of a different experience. Also what, what helped me was always, I, you know, take notes and then before these big exams that we had every two years, I'd go over everything and write my own like more condensed notes of things and I'd make sure that I'd really understand it. And I studied with a friend for, for my big oral exams there. So definitely form a study group and you know help each other out, ask each other lots of questions. Also ask questions in class. It's again something I never did. I was way too shy. And so, and you know, I was at the school where, where we had a, a very big group of physics majors. We had probably about 250 or so who started. And, and so there were very few people asking questions, not me. And I think it's a pity because I kind of missed out on that, but you know, definitely ask questions, study with others. If something isn't clear, don't despair, ask for help. And just be aware of the fact that you, know, you get good at that with more practice and trying things in different ways. And it's just because if, if you don't understand something at first, that's totally normal. And you know, well, maybe you'll understand it the second time around you when you look at it or the third or the fourth or the fifth time, as long as you understand it eventually, that's all good. So, and you know, we all have to do that, just depends on the level. When I read a research paper, I don't understand everything in there either. I need to read that several times. And so, you know, if you're running into a physics concept in class, that's how to understand and you need to look at it several times. That's perfectly okay. Okay, awesome. And then to close out, I just, um, you've already explained some concepts to us in physics and like your research, but I'm wondering if you can give us one more just physics fun fact. Okay, a physics fun fact. <laughs> okay, a very, very fun fact is, um, that right now there are like, you know, thousands of neutrinos just flying through you and you will never know. They're coming from the sun mainly. And uh, they are particles that we used to think have absolutely no mass, but now we know that they do have a very, very tiny mass because um, there are actually three kind of types of neutrinos that are associated with electron, muons and tau particles, which are kind of electrons, your listeners probably for sure have heard of, but muons are, and tau particles are just like heavier versions of electrons. And so the, these neutrinos are associated with them and they can change their, their type by what's called a neutrino oscillation. And in order for all that to happen, 
they need to have a very, very small mass. So that's pretty exciting, but they're super cool particles because they usually do not interact at all with matter. That's why they're really hard to work with experimentally because if it, you know something doesn't interact with you, you cannot detect it. So that's, that's bad. So you have to have really gigantic detectors like, you know, like, like huge, huge, basically, I was about to say swimming pools of water, but you have many, many, many swimming pools full of water and then you may uh, see some reactions there. And so, yeah, so the neutrinos are flying through you all the time and you'll never know, they don't do anything to you, but they go through you as we are speaking. Very interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining me today and being willing to just come on here and talk about your research and physics and that I, I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. And I, I feel fortunate that I was able to do that. And thank you for actually going ahead and, you know, making science more popular. And, you know, I, I absolutely love the goal that you have to, to encourage more people to get into science. I think it's a great field. It can be a lot of fun. And, you know, what you're doing is you're just opening a door and inviting people in, and that's wonderful. So big thank you for that. Yeah, um, of course, <laughs> anytime. <laughs> but um, anyways, have a really nice day.